Agus, it's an absolute delight to have you with me on 20 Questions. I'm such a huge fan of your commentary. I kind of grew up with it, really, listening to you on Test Match Special, home Test Matches, Test Matches Abroad in the, in the middle of the night. You bring such character and such personality and excitement to the occasion. You develop great relationships with other commentators on TMS. And of course, you're the BBC's radio cricket correspondent as well. So you're reporting on all the big stories. You're beamed into the living rooms and into the cars and everything else of so many you're a household name and you're you're verging perhaps on a, a national treasure. So there you are. That's my encomium <laughs> to you. That's my encomium well, to you. <laughs> I think I might owe you one after that. <laughs> we I have interviewed you once before for the Radio Times when I went up to Manchester, I think, and I interviewed you and the now Sir Jeffrey Boycott. So we know each other a little bit. In fact, I came and said hello to you in the Caribbean for the World Cup in 2007 when you were doing some highlights packages, possibly, for telly. I can't remember exactly. Maybe it was just for radio. But it, it was great to meet you. And this is 20 questions. So we've got 20 questions. And I'm going to start right now. Most people who know you, Jonathan, know you, of course, as I've just described as a, a commentator and right at the heart of Test Match Special on the BBC. But of course, you were a player yourself and you were a player of some you had three test matches for England. You took the wickets of Gordon Greenwich and now Sir Viv Richards, your first two test wickets. You played three one-day internationals. You were an express fast bowler in the early years of your career and then later learned to swing the ball, I think it's fair to say. And you've even talked of your own bowling career, your own playing career as having been very fast to start with and playing for England when perhaps you shouldn't have done and then slowing down a little bit later on and not playing for England when you should have done. How would you sum up your playing days? Well, yeah, I mean, a bit of a distant memory, I suppose. And what's quite interesting now is that I think a lot of people who listen to me on the radio are actually completely unaware that I ever played, which is which is fine. I mean, I don't really talk about my playing very much. I try and use the, the experience of having played in my commentary. So you try and explain what's going on and, and why it's going on. You can do that when you've when you've, you know you kind of been there and done it, if you like. Um, but my playing career is interesting. I mean, if I'm honest, you know, and, I, and, and these days much of my job is to form uh, an increasingly quick assessment these days, it seems, on on new players and whether they are good enough, um, whether they're going to make it at test level. Um, and some you can see very obviously are, someone like Ben Stokes or Sam Curran, um, you know, someone like someone like that, you just see just walk straight into a test match as if they own it, you know. And there are others who find it more difficult. And, and I was in that second group, really. I, I was sort of doubting whether I was good enough to step up um, and once you're in that frame of mind it's quite difficult and I only knew half the half the people in the team when I when I played I'd never met Ian Botham before and he was this sort of vast figure in the middle of the dressing room sort of bossing the place you know which is fairly intimidating when he didn't know him I mean he's always very good to me Ian but it was, it was so for, for some people playing for England is a dream and so when it happens, it still remains a bit of a dream. And I, I was in that category. I went back after playing that first test match you mentioned, again, some pretty good people out. But I watched the highlights on the telly and I might have been watching a different match. I had no idea. I had no idea what was going to happen next. So I was sort of floating, floating along. I think I was a better bowler later. But, you know, it's, it's very easy to get pigeonholed, I think, as a, as a, as a sportsman and... And once I had been pigeonholed as probably not being quite good enough, um, that was probably it. And it didn't matter how many wickets I took in, in that second half of my career, I was I was not going to play again. I think also I might have been a bit misunderstood. You know, I played cricket like I commentate, so you know, cheerfully, if you like. 
talking to people a lot, just chatting away and just enjoying myself. Uh, and I think there might have been one or two people then who were in positions of authority and selectors and stuff who perhaps thought that I wasn't taking it seriously, which is nonsense. I was just doing it with a smile on my face. So I suspect there might have been a little bit of that as well. You actually worked pretty hard at it. I think you I mean you bowled a lot of overs in the latter stages of your career. You took 100 wickets in a county season in the late 80s. You were one of the five wisdom cricketers of the year. When you were at your fastest earlier on, how fast do you think you were? I mean, I can't remember whether they had speed guns in those days, but how, how fast do you think your fastest ball was? I would have been about uh, high 80s, I suppose, up to 90 maybe. I mean, we didn't have speed guns, so it's very hard to tell. Um, but yeah, I think if you spoke to uh, David Lloyd, my own friend, my old friend Bumble, who's my first wicket when I just left school at 18, uh, I mean, he still hasn't hasn't seen the ball yet, I don't think. <laughs> or at least I tell, I tell him he hasn't. Um, you know, that, I mean, there are spells in which you bowl more quickly than others and, and conditions in which you bowl more quickly than others. But I was certainly quick enough. I mean, you know, I've got Gordon Greenwich out in that test match with, with quite a hostile ball. But I was, I was incredibly thin. I mean, I look back at the video of it, uh, and the first video, the first time I ever saw myself bowl, by the way, was those highlights of that first test. I'd never seen myself bowl before. And I was a bit surprised quite how thin I was. But the point being, there was no sort of training programs and fitness schedules then that there are now. And I think I would have been more sustainably quick had I been put on a, a, a proper you know, pathway or whatever you want to call them, working on fitness. And I was sent to Australia at 18, which is a great opportunity, except... I had just left school. I had I was ready to have to have a bit of freedom. There was nobody looking after me. I was told I was going to be met at Melbourne Airport by somebody called Frank, uh, which I duly was. Frank turned up. I went to, actually I lived with Frank for a month uh, and didn't know who he was. It turned out he was Frank Tyson. Uh, so um, it was all a bit strange. And I just wish perhaps I'd done that a couple of years later with a really structured plan in place for training and, and just. You know, sort of programming me more to be a, a professional cricketer rather than a, a, a boarding school pupil just released <laughs> released from jail for the first time, which is rather how it felt. So I think I might have been able to make myself a bit stronger and um, a bit more stamina and so on for bowling at that express pace. But, uh, yeah, you, you you get the cards you dealt, don't you? Now, it, was, it was a great experience going to Australia. Uh, I learned how to play in their conditions and I learned how hard they play their grade cricket, for instance, um, so it was, it was uh, overall, it was a good experience. It could have been better. Frank Tyson, of course, one of the great fast bowlers, one of the great English fast bowlers. Just a sub-question to that. I don't want to count this as a question, but did you not spend the winter once chopping trees to build your strength? No, that, well, that, was, that was Frank who did that. I, I, I spent two winters um, <laughs> uh, as a lorry driver delivering asbestos, which I slightly regret now, um, building windows. I mean, you know, we, we had no, there was no winter employment. Um, back in the day so you know you had to find anything and employers were very reluctant to take on a professional cricketer for anything meaningful because they'd been gone at the start of April so no I think it's actually Frank himself who chopped trees he was he was not a tall man he was a very very powerful bloke and um, he, he was someone who used to have he used to be sort of allowed one beer in the evening and that was because actually he didn't I mean it's not I mean, he, he, he probably would deny this he actually didn't take his beer very well and so he'd have one beer, and then next thing he'd be like this sort of raging, raging old fast bowler again. He'd be out in his garden. You think you're quick? I'll show you. And he's just, well, he must have been 50 odd then, I suppose, hurling the ball into the tennis ball, into, into the hedgerows. 
we go digging out to try and find this ball. It was all a bit surreal, really. But um, I had, had a great time with Frank. He was he was the coach at Victoria, and he sent me off all over the state with an old boy called Barry Plant. We'd go off in his van, coaching all all around Victoria in the schools, and I'd come and play great cricket on the weekends. So many differences, of course, between playing today and playing then. You mentioned seeing yourself bowl for the first time when you were deeply into your career already. Now, so many re replays, so much analysis, so much TV available. Another huge change is that people wear helmets these days. And I don't think in your day they always did. Did you worry ever when you were running in, trying to bowl as fast as you could, that you might actually hit someone, hit someone in the head? Yes, and it did happen, and uh, you know it's nasty. I mean, I mean, we talk about speed. I mean, in, in in school cricket, I was very fast, and the people that I bowled at there had had no idea how to cope with that. There was the annual teachers' match, of course, uh, at school, in which badly behaved pupils had come up and bribed me to go and <laughs> knock so and so, Mister So and So's head off. Uh, and you get these poor old people out there, middle aged and, and hardly able to play, facing those sort of thunderbolts. And I did, I did, yes, I created some nasty injuries. Um, Ranjan Madagala, one of the, uh, well, he's the top referee uh, in, in international cricket. He's still got a scar there on his top lip that I always remind you about when I was in. Um, and, you know, you break noses and break bones and those sorts of things. Um, when you get to a professional level, I, I mean, that's just accepted. You know, there's nothing you can do about it. But helmets came in really my first year as a professional cricketer. People were starting to wear them. And it was a funny thing because, then, back in, so we're talking about 1978, if a batsman wore a helmet, well, that's because he doesn't fancy short pitch bowling, so you peppered him. Within three years, completely, whereas if somebody came in without a helmet, it meant they were an arrogant so-and-so, so you peppered them. And you just bowled normally to the people who are now wearing helmets. Uh, but I remember my first game against Lancashire, so straight from school, I didn't have a helmet. And there was Colin Croft bowling for Lancashire, and it just looked horrendous. Thank God I didn't get in. I mean, he would kill me. Uh, I don't know if anything like it in my life. But, um, yeah, I mean, it, helmets are obviously essential. You see some horrible injuries, um, which, which you know, they're, they're, they're now saved largely by the helmet. Angus, you weren't known for your batting, I think it's fair no. to say. But you did, hit, <laughs> you did hit a 90 against Yorkshire, I believe, in Scarborough. And amongst those runs, you hit six sixes. I mean, where did that come from? And well, describe, it was <laughs> describe the thrill as, as a bowler, not known for his batting. I mean, you could bat a bit. You weren't an all-rounder, but you could bat a bit. But describe the thrill of hitting six sixes. Well, it was unusual. I mean, it was a stress. There weren't six sixes in an over. I didn't quite, I didn't quite match Gary Sobers that day. <laughs> um, but it was a strange... No, I mean, I, talk about helmets. I did get hit in the mouth, a really nasty blow when I was I know, 19 or so. Um, by Sam Curran's dad, actually, Kevin. We were playing a friendly game of all things. He bounced me straight in the mouth. And it was nasty teeth and you know, bits of lips and stuff and stitched up. And I, ne and I never really got over that. And it happens to a lot of people. You know, cricket ball is hard. It's dangerous and it hurts and can cause some damage. So, I'm, yeah, psychologically, I was always damaged from that point. That, that one you're talking about, was actually, I was night watchman. Because Peter Willey, who was our vice captain at Leicester, had become captain whenever David was away. David Gow was away playing uh, playing for England. He, I used to tease Peter. He was a great friend of mine. So I would sort of, you know, verbally um, torment him, really. And that wasn't Peter's thing. So he would respond either by hitting me or by making me night watchman because he knew I was terrified. That means going out and facing the fast bowlers fresh with about 15 minutes to go before the end of play when you've been bowling all day. I mean, it's, a hor it's a horrible position to do. And so that innings actually was night watchman. It was at Yorkshire. It was at Scarborough. 
And um, Yorkshire didn't have many fast bowlers. They had Paul Jarvis. But those sixes were all plundered off uh, dear old Phil Carrick, who was a left-arm spinner. Because I blocked out the night before. I did my job. just blocked, blocked, blocked. And then sort of unleashed the next morning. And actually, the one thing that does annoy me was I was actually on course for the fastest 100 of the season, which I didn't know at the time. Had I known, I might have just tried to make sure I got to those three figures. But uh, dear old David Bairstow took off and took a flying catch behind the stumps and a, a, a ball destined for the boundary, same as in 94, ended up uh, being brilliantly caught. So, but it was, it was, a, it was a bit of fun. It was, it was the second 50 I got in my, in my first class career. But unfortunately, my batting was marred by the fact that I was a complete coward. When you say you were hit, Aggers. Peter, oh yes, Peter Willie, yeah, good, good, good thump on the arm. <laughs> it was just, uh, you know, I've had enough of this and bang, you know. That's the way Peter was. You know, he's, he's a very good friend of mine. And it was, you know, it was just his way of, of, of pulling me back in line, you know, I see a lot of Peter now, but he's a very, very, very tough Geordie, uh, ridiculously powerful forearms, brilliant record against the West Indies fast bowlers, and he used to beat in both of them at arm wrestling, so uh, that was that was, that was Peter. What was your childhood like, Agus? I know it's very difficult for any of us to sum up our childhood, but give us a sense of it. Uh, okay, so um, boarding school from the age of eight, uh, dad's a farmer, I've often wondered, I've asked them many times, my parents, why they did send us away at eight. My brother came after me as well. And they said, well, it was kind of the done thing, you know, and uh, I don't think they enjoyed it very much. And we were, I was at the place called Tavram Hall, which is outside Norwich. Um, and it's a long, it was a long way from home. And I remember those journeys in the car, uh, you know, setting off and going there and you'd be there you know, for months. There'd be, uh, there'd be a half term and there'd be a, a weekend out. Um, but it was always too far to go home. We went back on half terms, but never on those weekends. So we'd end up, I don't know, sitting in a hotel in Great Yarmouth or something. Um, it's all right as long as, as long as you liked and, and could play sport. Then you're okay. In I found in in boarding schools, if you didn't, then it was it was harder. I know my brother didn't enjoy it, and I think you know it'd have been better for him if he was two years behind me if he'd been sent to sort of different boarding house or a different school or something just to be you know to plough his own furrow, you know. But I enjoyed it, and I mean, I, I don't think I don't think I could have gone to Australia, um, you know, whatever it was, two and a half months after leaving school by myself, knowing nobody, if I hadn't had the experience of being able to fend myself for ten years at school. You do have to fend for yourself, but I made you know I made a lot of friends, but I did learn a bit of self survival, independence, and then we'd come home in the holidays, and if it was summer holidays, I'd be playing cricket um, all the time. If it was the Christmas holidays or the Easter holidays, I'd be plucking turkeys, just what my dad did. So we'd be destined for the plucking shed for hours on end, pulling feathers out of dead turkeys. But um, yeah, needs must, that's what it was. So you were born in Macclesfield in Cheshire. And is it right that you grew up on the family farm and that cricket from the age of nine or ten or so became a real passion? You'd, you'd watch the cricket, you'd listen to the commentary, the TMS commentary, and then you'd go and practice your bowling afterwards in the garden. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my dad was very keen. He, he, he was a club cricketer. You know, nothing necessarily special, but he played. He, he loved the game. Uh, he was very patient, uh, much more patient than I am. And so, yeah, I mean, I, he took me to watch the 1971 Gillette Cup final at Lords. It was Lancashire against Kent, who were the two best one-day teams at the time. I sat there in the grandstand, aged 11, uh, and watched uh, Peter Lever bowling from the nursery end. I'd never seen anything like it. A long, sweeping, runny bowl, very fast. Uh, the balls flew through to the wicketkeeper Fruk engineer. And Lancashire on my side anyway, I started to get into that because I was born in Macclesfield. And I said to my dad, that's who I want to be. I want to be Peter Lever. 
and he became like a hero really to me and who I've of course got to know really well since he's a lovely man um, it's, it's lovely when your childhood heroes turn out to be good blokes and Peter certainly was um, and so that's where it started and so yeah I'd sit and watch test matches 1972 watching Bob Massey making his debut at Lords, swinging the ball all over the place and then what 30 years later or so I'll be sitting next to Bob in, in the, at the Wacker commentating on a test match which is all a bit strange Ray Illingworth who of course won the Ashes in Australia, I used to watch him for hours um, with the curtains closed, watching on our black and white telly at home. And then he was my first county captain at Leicestershire. So my, my life has been quite strange like that, where you know, heroes from my youth actually have all played parts you know, parts in my life. You know, like Ray, um, like Boycott, like Peter Lever, like David Lloyd, my first wicket, you know, all, all those sorts of things. They've come back, Bob Massey, come back into my life. Dennis Lilly, Ian Chappell. I can name all these people who are sort of inspirational characters. And uh, when I was 16, Dad took me to Alf Gover's Cricket School in Wandsworth. Uh, that was a very famous school on, on the top of a sort of petrol station, really. And Alf was a great old boy, fast bowler, uh, Surrey in England. He toured India in 1938. And it must have been a pretty tough tour in those days, three and a half, four months or so. And halfway through it, he always told this story. They all, Most of the team went down with dysentery and Alf. Alf was, uh, Alf was okay, so they threw him the ball to run in a bowl the first ball of the game, and halfway through his very long run-up, he just doubled up, this awful, griping feeling in his stomach, so he, he knew what it was, and he just kept running. He ran he ran past the batsman, he, he ran through the slip cordon, he just headed like mad for the dressing rooms, or such as the facilities were, and he always told the story, he said he lost the race by two yards. Uh, which was always rather nice. And he, he looked after me. Or I remember he sort of wrapping an arm around me when we were going to pick the ball up. And it was him who got me into professional cricket. He got me to Surrey. Um, and that's where, where my life as a professional began. Your cousin, Mary Duggan, was a, and she was your first cousin. She was a women's test player for England from 1948 to 1963. Is that right? She was. She was captain of England, actually. I'm very proud of Mary. I never met her. Mary Beatrice Duggan. The photographs make her look rather severe. Um, but she was an all-rounder. She took seven for six once uh, against Australia, which are the best figures in international in women's international test cricket, which, which isn't bad. So I'm, 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 I'm yeah, I'm, I'm very, very proud of cousin Mary. Why did you not meet her? I'm afraid she she, she died very young. Simple as that. Um, but she was I, your first. She was your first cousin. Yes, she was. Yeah, absolutely. And we had a sort of a reunion uh, oh, a few years ago now. Sort of an England club. That Andrew Strauss got going. So everybody, man or woman, who played for England was together. Uh, I remember talking to Edith Blakewell there, who played Edith Blakewell, who played with her. And it was the first time really that I got you know, joined a few dots up with Mary Duggan. You know, he's obviously a terrific cricketer. And Rachel Hayhoe Flint always, always talked about uh, about Mary Duggan. Um, you know, in a, in a very grateful way. They taught at the same school, and so she she did a lot to encourage to encourage Rachel's career. Now, I've read, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, that Lady Mona Agnew, who <laughs> was your paternal grandmother, so your father's mother, she lived until... She, 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 she was a Duggan, so she, that's where Mary came from. So she lived until she was 110 years and 170 days. <laughs> yes, she did. She's on yes. the, I, th I think she may be on the list of the 100 longest-lived British people ever. She's she in the 90s, I think. <laughs> Oh, she was an amazing woman. I mean, I mean, and as we speak, her daughter, age ninety-six, is still with us, and uh, her son—that's my dad—is uh, coming up for ninety-four. 
uh, Easterwood. I don't think I'll be living that long, but there are some long genes in the family. But oh no, Granny was an amazing woman. You know, she she had a, a great memory. She was she was with it right till the very end. She remembered extraordinary things. I mean, she she began life obviously in, the, in, in two centuries ago. Um, her dad was a GP, and so during the First World War, she was taken out of school. And she was taught how to drive. And bear in mind, in you know, 1914 to 18, very few women drove. She was taken out of school, taught to drive a car, and she drove her father on his rounds uh, in Cheshire in that Macclesfield area, essentially looking after the poor old fellows who came back gassed. Uh, so that was the start of you know her well adult life, really, the First World War. She had, she had an amazing life. I remember on her 100th birthday, I took her out, and my wife had a convertible sports car and it was in at harvest times so of august and i took i took her out in the car we sped around the country lanes and you know, the smell of the corn and the blue skies and so on and I, I took her back to the old old folks home where she was living at the time she said jonathan she said you don't want to live as long as this i know everyone wants to live forever but i promise you it's not it's not what it's all cracked up to be uh, and she missed all her friends and it was it was it was a lonely last 15 years i guess for her, but uh, yeah, she she went on to 110. Were there any clues in your childhood, Agus, that you would go on to be a journalist? You go on to be a commentator. You you practiced your bowling, of course, as we've discussed. But did you did you practice your commentary? Did, tell us a, a little bit about where the commentary came from in you. Well, I've I've got to be absolutely honest. I I, I, I don't know. I think it's just. I mean, I th- I firmly believe it's something that you can either do or you can't do. You know, I do a, I do a fair amount of coaching and helping people you know, develop as commentators, but essentially, if they if they haven't got the, you know, quite a lot of it in the first place, then yeah, I I don't think you make it through. And I'm not I'm not making it out to be like a rocket scientist. I'm just saying like, you can either do it or you can't. You know, it, it, it's it, I think it's just like that. I mean, I think if you if you like a bit of a gossip, uh, if you're inquisitive, um, and you know I'm. I find when I'm commentating, I, I sort of ask myself questions in my mind that you answer as you're looking around a ground or whatever it may be. Something catches your eye. You know, what's that? And you answer, you, you sort of answer, answer that. So that's probably it. I mean, I remember on my, I mean, I toured India for England in 1984 and I didn't play. I hardly played at all, but I got to know the journalists pretty well on that, um, on that tour because I, you know, I wasn't part of the team really. So I remember spending nights with them in the hotels there. And I, I, I did get an interest in what they did, but also the, the, the what, what a journalist is. You know, I kind of found myself drawn to their company because they tell stories, because they're interesting people, because they want to be interested in things. You know, I, 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 yeah, I think I am kind of a natural journalist, if you like. And I remember they set me a challenge. So the the first day of the last Test match of that tour, which England won that series, they said, "Yeah, all right, okay, you show us then." You you write eight hundred words close of play for the first day of tomorrow's test match. And I said, okay, I had nothing else to do, and I was rooming, rooming with Phil Edmonds actually, and we were in Kanpur, uh, and so we got back to uh, to our room. Phil was an avid reader, and he'd been playing all day, so he was pretty tired and been bowling all day because uh, Muhammad Azruddin scored his third successive hundred um, in his first three tests, which is a, an incredible record. And I wrote my report. While he was reading, I remember sitting at the desk in the hotel in Kampur, went down to the bar after to gave it to them. And the main point was that I'd got the sequence of events right. You know, I'd done a reasonable journalistic job in that 
first report I'd ever done, a fledgling, fledgling cricket report, you know. And they, they thought, yeah, okay, you know, you might have a future at this sort of thing, you know. But it was only really when I went to Radio uh, Radio Leicester, started working there, that again my real love of of, of journalists developed, you know, sort of kindred spirits, if you like, and their um, a love of radio because I really understood what radio is. Um, you know the companionship, the company, the the connection with people, and what it means to people who listen in a way that television just doesn't. You know, television talks to you out of a, you know, a screen stuck to a wall these days, whereas radio you take with you, you carry with you. It's in your car. It's you know, at work. You, you you've, you've got to work a bit harder to to listen to radio. You've got to work a bit harder to to get the you know, in my case the cricket commentary. You've actually got to engage your brain rather than just sitting there looking at a television. Um, and all of those things, I think, help make you know, radio such a much more fulfilling experience, both for the broadcaster, um, but also for the listener, because you do have to you do have to engage as a, as a broadcaster. You've got to engage with that person out there who's listening, and that person has to engage with the broadcaster. And if you if you can get it all together, um, then it makes I think a really you know, a really lovely bond, and it's something that you know, is, 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 is as I think unique to radio. You played in the 1985 Ashes series in England. You played one test match. We won that series. There was a chance, there was a hope. I think David Gower even rang you up ahead of the sixth test of the 1989 Ashes series in England, suggesting that you might play or would play in that game. And that must have been very exciting that you you were going to make your comeback for England. You were still only, what, late 20s, maybe 30, I'm not sure. But that was a great ended up as a great disappointment because he then called you back the following day and said, "Actually, yes. you're not playing. It's not, it's not happening." <laughs> yeah. Well, that was a crazy. I mean, I so I'd gone through those years in which I had taken all those wickets. Um, we were sitting uh, in our dressing room at uh, Grace Road. I think we were playing Surrey and the England team for the fi- final test, which is that, that series had been a disaster. Alan Borders Australia came over. And very disciplined. The Australia had moved on, really, and England hadn't yet. But um, but the, the team had been announced, and as was the way in those days, literally people would phone up David, England captain and our captain, in our dressing room, and essentially all the fast bowlers were pulling out through injury. I mean, some of that was a bit of experience to make sure they got on the winter tour and didn't get things wrong in this last test. But one by one by one by one, they all kept pulling out. And in the end... David sat there in the dressing room and said, what am I going to do? I've got no, I haven't got any, I haven't got any bowlers. And Peter Willey, my old friend, said, well, what about, what about Aggers? He's, he's bowling all right. And David sort of looked, he said, yes, yes, you are actually, Jonathan. Yes, right, okay, go home, get your England gear out, you're in, be at the Oval. I'll just check with Ted Dexter, who was the chairman of selectors, and Mickey Stewart, the coach. I'll, I'll give you a ring first thing in the morning just to confirm it. So I went home thinking, wow, finally, after all these years, you know, I've done it. I've got back. And I phoned my dad up. So come on, daddy, come on to the Oval next week. I'm, I'm, back, in, I'm back on the case. Uh, he was thrilled. Uh, first thing in the morning, so I sort of set my alarm for seven o'clock, you know, waiting for David's call. Um, around about half past 11, of course, I realised it was David Gower we're talking about. So first thing in the morning was about a course to midday. Uh, and he said, you're not in anymore. I, I haven't been able to persuade Ted or, or Mickey that you should play. So I'm sorry about that. And then he said, who's Alan Niggleston? Um, because he's playing instead. And I, I explained Alan's a nice fellow, a good bowler. But uh, that really put the put the finishing touch to it. I was, I was 29. I wasn't going to play for England again, obviously. Um, I was interested in radio. I was getting a job going at Radio Leicester. Today, newspaper, Eddie Shaw's paper. 
uh, was employing me as well to do things. I'd written a book. So that was the moment that I thought, right, next season will be my last um, and I shall then retire and see and see what happens. So that was the defining moment, really. I remember that 1989 series so well. It was one of the first series I really engaged with as a boy because I was only nine myself and I think we lost 4-0 and that, that yep. was it was it that early test when Marsh and Taylor piled on the runs on the first day and we went through a few opening batsmen I think and Graham Gooch really struggled against Terry Alderman he was about to hit the most prolific form of his career of course but that wasn't a good series for him I just re- I remember it so vividly I, something else I remember Agus was the 1991 series home series against West Indies when Gooch played magnificently. That 150-odd he scored at Headingley, I think one of the greatest innings by an England batter ever because of the conditions, because of the circumstances, because of the attack he was facing. But in that final test of that series, Ian Botham, now Lord Botham, he made a return, I think. He got back in the side. He was wearing his white helmet, if memory serves. And of course, that gave rise to one of the greatest moments in cricket commentary perhaps any sporting commentary ever just talk us briefly through the leckover moment yeah with, with John. Well, it, was, it, was, it was it was my first summer actually uh, and I was in those days I wasn't a commentator I was an expert summarizer of all things given that Fred and Trevor Bailey were the other two uh, so um, I think John has spent much of that summer wondering who I was really but I ended up yes bad light stop play at the Oval and I ended up Filling time with him for the first time that we'd done actually that summer. It's not a thrill. And of course, dear old Brian was determined to get through the scorecard before we embarked on some sort of review of the day. And John Etheridge of The Sun, an old friend of mine, had actually said to me earlier in the day when he and both of them got out in a slightly unusual way of stepping over his stumps, avoiding a, a hostile ball and flicking a bail off. He said, oh, I know what Ian Botham's, sorry, I know what our headline will be today. He said, um, Ian Botham cocks it up by not getting his leg over. And I laughed and went back on the commentary box but it somehow that expression stuck um because i honestly i mean i've said lots of silly things deliberately since but that was not that was not one i wouldn't i wouldn't dare have said it especially when i was aware of the consequences of it because when i said that he didn't get his leg over brian's face was just one of utter horror like like he'd been he took one on the nose from from mike tyson tears pouring down his face sort of winded really there was like a frisson in the box. You could tell, you could tell that it was all going a bit wrong. Throughout the whole thing, Tony Cozier, um, the West Indian commentator, was sitting beside me with a, an open microphone, live microphone, right in front of his mouth. And he, he could have, he could have spoken at any moment, um, and and just kind of rescued the situation because beside him was chaos. Uh, people just in fits of giggles, it's awful, corpsing as they call it, where you just cannot speak. And when you hear it played, and you hear Brian squeaking and wheezing and so on. Well, you couldn't hear it at the time because there were 30,000 people at the Oval. So the crowd noise drowned all that out. It was just like silence. And, um, well, afterwards, I mean, I must have been, well, when it was going on, I was, I was, I was worried because this clearly yeah, it was a bit of a shambles. Brian afterwards was really not very happy at all. He stomped off into the night. He thought it had let him let the show down, been unprofessional, all that sort of stuff. And so off he went. And I thought that might not have been a great career move. But the next day, I turned up at the Oval to do an early slot for the Today programme, and they played it. First time I'd heard it, and clearly it was very funny, and John Humphreys and, and Gary Richardson and co. were there laughing. So actually, I relaxed a bit. I came and reporting for duty that morning, and I said, come on, we've got to go and listen to this. I, I promise you, Brian, it's funny. And we went downstairs to the engineer's room, sat there, and we listened. 
And he had tears pouring down his face. He loved it. I mean, from that moment on, he he just he carried it around with him everywhere. They played it to him when he was lying in his hospital bed, you know, obviously you know, fatally ill uh, after heart attacks. They, they 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 played it to him there to try and try and uh, get some reaction. You know, he 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 loved the leg over. Talk to us about the chemistry that you've had with some of the people you've commentated with, the relationships, the sort of pairings that you've developed over the years. Does that come naturally? Is that something you can build up? Describe um, the process of that. That's a very good question. I mean, my relationship with Brian Johnston was like that of a grandfather and grandson, really. We're 60 years apart, very similar senses of humour, very silly, innuendo-based nonsense. Um, and from that perspective... Yeah, we, we we really were very, you know, very close. Actually, um, he never once tried to tell me what to do or or demonstrate anything. We we just had that lovely relationship. And you know? I, I, I I love Brian to death. It's a great regret of mine that Emma, my wife, never met him um, because he he was a huge influence. I know that if I hadn't worked with Brian, I know what broadcaster I'd want to be, but I probably wouldn't have the guts to be it. Um, you know, Brian kind of. You know, gave gave me wings, if you like, because it's it's a similar style to him. Uh, sometimes his son will phone me up and say, "Yeah, you when you said that this afternoon, that's exactly what Dad would have said." Uh, and I think that's really nice. You know, I think that's a, that's that's a, that's, a, that's a lovely thing to say. Um, but Jeff Boycott, totally on the other end of the scale as a as a character, someone that I've just always got on with, even when we played uh, against each other. He was opening bats when I was opening bowler. We've just always always got on. I mean, I just. I just think you know if you are a, if you're a friendly person, and you are on air with someone quite a lot, then you just do develop that relationship. I mean, Phil Tufnell, you know, recently, of course, is someone again. I do a lot of theatre with Phil, so I know him very well. He knows me very well. He knows what he can get away with. He's very quick, very sharp. The overseas comedies, I mean, people like I mean Ian Chapel, who again was sort of the Australian that you just, you know you're brought up to hate if you're an Englishman. Is a really good friend of mine in Sydney. Love working with him. I and mean, I can sort of go through lists of, of, of you know, Jeremy Coney, uh, Glenn McGrath, who's who's with us this summer again. You know, he's become a very good friend. He stayed with us this Easter when he was over. You know, it's just radio, radio's like that. And I think if you're you know, similarly minded, um, then because you are on air quite a lot together, and you're wanting the program to sound good, and you're wanting to get the best out of that person that you're with, you do therefore sort of tune into 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 that person. I mean, Ebony Rainford Brent, another who's a very good friend of mine, and I love working with Ebony. You know, she's a great character. She's got a lovely laugh. She knows what buttons to press to to to, to take the Mickey out of me, which is great. Vic Marks, another you know, who's the same, you know, a great leveler, if you like, Victor. No, it's just, it's just. I think again, we go back to the point. Radio is different to television. You don't really seem to get that sort of pairing on TV that you do on the radio. I remember in the Pakistan series when England won sensationally three nil under this new brand of incredible brand of cricket led by Ben Stokes and Brendan McCullum under the stewardship ultimately of Rob Key, of course. There was a passage of play in one of those Pakistan Test matches overseas where you and Vic Marks were talking. Maybe, maybe you were summing it up after the game. I can't remember. It was a wonderful win for England, and it was just two masters of the art, you and Vic. Sensation, wonderful listening, really wonderful listening. How would you say TMS has changed over the years? Does it, for you, inside the box, retain the sort of magic that it had in the past? Well, I, I mean, I hope so. It's definitely different. You know, I look at photographs taken when I first began. 
and it was really just a, a collection of um, you know middle-aged white blokes. Um, in fact, older than middle-aged, some of them, uh, and me. I was clearly much younger than all of them. Um, and now, I mean, it's 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 a completely different makeup, and that, and that, and that that's a that, that's a really good thing. You know, we've got. I mean, what's happened to the women's game over the last few years is is meteoric, and 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 Test match special must reflect that. You know, it's 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 very important that we attract well as many listeners as we can, and and that the program is as appealing to as many people uh, as as it can be. So, I mean, that's that's the obvious that that's the obvious change to to TMS. And you know, I, I really enjoy working. I mean, like with Isha Gua, for instance. She's got a wonderful laugh as well. She has got a very good laugh. Um, and I was able to hand the baton over because the last live BBC television coverage that there was in 1999, I was hosting. Uh, it was the World Cup. And so I was able to, and I wrote a very long email actually about what I felt it meant to be um, sort of the face of BBC television, if you like. I, I, I did mention in a, in, a, in a polite way that I felt that her face was slightly more attractive on the television than mine. Uh, but, you know, that she'll do a great job. There are some traditions that it needs to be maintained. You know, if you hand it on down the years, previous generations, be aware of the history. Um, you know, just, I, I sort of sent that on to her and, and I know she took it She took it really well because it is important. You know, BBC Sport, uh, it does matter. And BBC Sport has to be the best. And you know, it, it's it, it's not easy these days to be that. There's so much competition out there. I think Sky do a brilliant job uh, with their cricket coverage, uh, and of course we don't get very much of it now. But that means for me, therefore, that the radio has to be the best, uh, and we have to beat off, um, in, certainly in terms of quality of coverage, anyone else that comes along. And uh, it's, it's it's no bad thing to have competition, by the way. Yeah, I think it's a good thing. It, you know, it keeps you on your keeps you on your metal and, and makes sure that. That, that people are chosen for the program for the right reasons. That they, you know they're good and they know what they're talking about. That's that's also important. You 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 know you you do need you do need to select on merit um, as as well, obviously, as getting as much variety as you can. So it's 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 not it's not an easy balancing act. When you're in the commentary box these days, you've done it for over three decades now. Do you ever think about it? Do you ever have to think about what you're doing, or do you just do it? And if you do just do it, has it has it changed over the years for you? That's a really good question. Um, I will be very nervous the first day because we haven't I haven't commentated since before Christmas. Uh, we've got the Ireland test first, which I'm not going to do the Irish down, but that should be a, a sort of gentler introduction to the summer because it, 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 it's not going to have the hype. Um, whereas the first day of the Ashes is massive. And so I'll be there very early. I'll be anxious. I'll probably script an opening, which I never normally do, but I probably will because we're out there in the middle. You have a huge, the crowd will be there gathered, the captains will be there. You know, it's it's a great privilege. And it, you know, during COVID, obviously we couldn't do that, and it just showed you know, what what a what a special moment that is to be able to be out there at, at the start. It's, it's amazing. And so, funny, it's a strange thing. Everybody will be on edge for that first session, everybody involved in the game. But then after that, you just like get into it again. You know, you rock up and, and you do it because it's, I, I always find, I mean, I always look at, at people who are doing it for the first few times and they sit down with reams of notes, all the research they've been doing, you know, all that stuff. And I mean, I, do, I don't do that. I mean, I, I obviously I research the players who are playing in terms of form, uh, an interesting line or two here and there, but I, I never sit down with reams of paper because what happens is, of course, because you've done all that, you feel you've got to read it all out. <laughs> That's, and it's a, it can be a bit tedious. So much better, you know, I, I think, my own way of doing it, that you are trying to bring people to where you are 
And therefore, you, it is all about where you are, the colour, the noise, the atmosphere, what's happening in the game, the people you're with, uh, little little stories here and there, who's dropping in. Uh, oh, David Gow's pop his head around the door. Hi, David. You, you know, it's, it's, it's that sort of a thing, I, I think rather than churning out stats about someone going to I know, Shrewsbury school for three years. You know, I, you know, I, I just don't, that, that's, that's, not, that's not my style. Uh, I was never really interested in stats when I played. And although Bill Frindle particularly sort of made me more stats conscious about when they're relevant, um, I'm still not really driven by, by sort of you know, the minutiae of, mountains of statistics that I, that's, I think it's a bit dry I think it adds something that you are you know a little bit nervous ahead of the ashes ahead of this summer's ashes because I mean I, th- I think most people will be but also just tremendously excited because it's going to be the first ashes series under this new brand of cricket that I've already mentioned and we don't quite know what's going to happen but we know that it's going to be utterly thrilling with any with 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 just the tiniest bit of luck it's going to be with the with the protagonists involved it's going to be so exciting I, I want to ask you something that perhaps not everyone will know about you but you are on tour at the moment with Glenn McGrath the great great Australian fast bowler and it's a stage tour so you're doing theatres I think around the country yeah and you've done this sort of thing with others already as I think you mentioned earlier I spent four years as a broadcaster as a presenter on LBC and I do a lot of on-stage work interviewing well-known people and I absolutely love doing the LBC thing it's incredibly exciting live radio doing something on stage gives you something slightly different again it's unbelievable sensation to be in front of a live audience that you can see I mean the lights are dimmed so perhaps you can't see them that well for a lot of it but you feel them you hear them you get this instantaneous feedback they laugh you hope if you say something funny or self-deprecating and that's slightly different from live radio because yes you're aware of the TMS family yes you get texts and tweets in and all the rest of it emails yes you get given these incredible cakes but when you're on stage it's a little bit different and I know that you love that as well don't you I really do I mean for me the theatre is the best because you do have that that contact I mean you can come out with the funniest line ever on test match special and think oh that was good um, and you get no response at all, of course, because uh, you might see a few around the ground having a chuckle. But to have that sort of response from a live audience, uh, I think is amazing. And I mean, I absolutely love it. It's, it's again, it's one of those things, I think, that if you're you know, relaxed and comfortable doing it, um, you know, there's a lot of people will get very stressed about going out, walking out there in front of you know, 14, 1500 people. But I, but I don't. I mean, I've got I've got one of these watches that does your heart rate. And the other day, just out of interest, say, I think Glenn was talking. I thought, I wonder what my heart rate is at the moment. Yeah, we got. I think it was twelve hundred people in uh, we're at Royal Festival Hall. Uh, so we're midway through the tour, and I just tapped the watch and pressed the thing, and it came out seventy two. I thought, well, that's not that's not bad given you're live live on stage in front of you know all those people. I'm a sixty three year old bloke, so maybe seventy two is a bit high, but. It wasn't. It wasn't a hundred and two. Put it that way. You know, like you, like you might imagine, it is. It just. It's just what you're comfortable doing, isn't it? And I mean, everybody listening is comfortable doing what they do and what they do well. Um, because if you weren't comfortable doing it, you wouldn't be doing it well. So you know, I, I, I was talking last night to, to a group uh, where I am now in Barnstaple, and a lovely fellow came up to me and they told me Thomas Cricket and what you do and your commentary is marvelous. I said, What do you do? He said, Oh, I'm an anaesthetist. I said, oh, for God's sake. I said, that's a proper job. <laughs> that is, you know, he said, oh, I love it. And I, and I said, how do you feel when you're putting somebody to sleep? And they go, oh, well, you know, it's a, it's a great privilege to be able to do it. And he thinks, who's got, who's got the hardest job here? 
And yet the response was the same, that he's he's relaxed doing it. I mean, he's very responsible. I mean, imagine an anaesthetist coming up and saying as a, to a cricket commentator that you know, you've got, you know, you're, you're amazing at your job. It, it just, you know, it's, it's, it's ridiculous, really. The BBC has been in the news a lot lately. Impartiality at the heart of those stories. Gary Lineker, of course. You're not just a TMS commentator, as I've said. You're the BBC's radio cricket correspondent, cricket radio correspondent. How hard is it for you to maintain due impartiality? Yes, you're doing sport. You're, you're not doing politics, although politics and sport, of course, do mix. How challenging is that over such a long period of time to make sure that you don't trip up? And do you feel that pressure? Do you feel that responsibility? Well, I, I think I know what I should and shouldn't be doing. I mean, I, I, I've come off social media largely because I lost my temper with somebody who, who wrote that I was a racist. Um, he and I have since made up, which is fine, and, that, and we've moved on. But social media for me is, 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 is a horrible thing. Um, I see my colleagues come off air after 20 minutes, and the first thing to do is dash straight to Twitter and see what they've said. Is it okay? Have I not? Okay? Oh, who have I offended? Oh, no, one person there said I'm useless. Um, you know, I, 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 I hate it. And I was quite engaged in it. You know, I, I enjoyed doing it. When, and when it, when it was nice, when my wife had breast cancer, for instance, it was a nice place. It was supporting and, and, and the good people came out, you know. But unfortunately, um, it didn't take long before the other lot were back. And I, I just, why, why do you want abuse in your life? Why do you invite it in? Um, so that's that one. That, you know, I think being on social media complicates what you're talking about, impartiality. But I mean, I know what, what my rules are. Um, and what the BBC expects of me. And I, I apart from that one incident, uh, which was a, a, a private message, incidentally, um, you know, I, 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 I think I've got it more or less right. I haven't had too many um, bollockings um, because, you know, this summer I'll probably be interviewing Rishi Sunak, who's, who, apart from being the prime minister, is also a very serious cricket fan. So there's a very good chance that a view from the boundary, I'll be interviewing the prime minister. Now, if I've gone on social media uh, slagging off the government and doing this and doing that, then that, that's a pretty difficult place to start interviewing the prime minister from, isn't it? So, I you know that that's that's my standpoint. I I have to, no one knows how I vote. Um, I, I I have to be impartial because my job does include that. Now, I will just be fair to Gary, although I think well, whatever doesn't matter what I think. But Gary's job doesn't involve him interviewing the prime minister, so he's in a slightly different position to me. I have to say that I do miss you on Twitter, Agus, but I, I understand. <laughs> I, I fully understand why you're off it. Listen, you mentioned racism tangentially. How far do you think the game has got to go to really stamp it out at every level? The over-racism, the subtle racism, the, the sort of unconscious bias. Like, you know, you, you're steeped in this game and mm. clearly we've had problems with it. How much more progress do you feel well, needs to I be think made? The only, the only answer I can give to that is that I think it's got as far as society has, has got to go. You know, cricket, I think, is only a reflection of, of society itself. Um, yeah, I mean, there are a lot of, 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 you know, a lot of racial mix in cricket. But I have to be honest, and apart from one incident at Surrey, which is the cause of me leaving there when I was 16, when the coach uh, racially abused um, he was my second eleven captain. Actually, I'd never met him before, but it was totally unacceptable. Who was the coach? I, well, he's not with us anymore. He was a well-known off-spinner for Middlesex, and, and he was coach at Surrey and played for England many times. His name was Fred Titmus. Um, so that was, I, I stood up and objected, uh, and that was basically the end of my career at Surrey, but that's fine. Um, but 
other than that, I've got to be honest and say that I really haven't you know, experienced things very much. I mean, certainly no more so than, than in society itself. Uh, and therefore, it's, it's the whole of society, I think, has to wake up because it's, it's, it's those values from society that people bring with them into cricket. And you look at the England players now, um, they're so used to playing with and against Asian players, West Indian players, black players, whatever, because they play with them. And, that, and that's a good thing. It's one of the very few good things about all the franchise cricket that's being played at the moment, in that it does mean that you, you do mix with people that ordinarily would be your opponents. And so there's much more respect now for, for those players. I mean, what happened in Yorkshire, I, I, I really don't know. I, I hope, and to an extent, I do believe that Yorkshire was a bit of a one-off, frankly. Um, because certainly at Leicester, in my time there, I never, I never experienced anything the like of which we've seen um, reported from Yorkshire. Will Test cricket survive? Uh, the, for me, there are very few pleasures in life greater than listening to or watching a test match. The, the thrill of it, the fact that it can change on a sixpence, the fact that it can be going nowhere for four and three quarter days and then you get a win. The, the excitement. Yes, T20 cricket can be exciting. Yes, yes, one day internationals can be exciting for me. And I went to the World Cup final with my dad at Lords when we beat New Zealand in, in that super over, ending up winning on boundaries. I mean, a more extraordinary tale you couldn't tell. I, I was physically sort of shaking from that. It was unbelievably exciting. But for me, there just isn't anything quite like Test cricket. I'm desperate for it to survive, but will it? Um, I think we're at a breaking point now. Um, if I'm honest. Um... I think if this, if the current breed of administrators, and I, I'm, I'm, I think they're lazy, uh, it's an easy thing to knock out another franchise tournament. I think the players are lazy; they can earn all this money just by playing four overs, uh, bowling four overs, just you know having a slog. Um, they haven't got to be away from home for months, missing Christmases, kids' birthdays. So, so it's a, it's an easy easy thing to take, um, and it, it, it's it, it's swamping it's swamping. The, the, the calendar it's as simple as that and if 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 these administrators deny the next generation of cricket lovers you know the kids who are coming up now if they deny them the opportunity to experience test cricket in other words they grow up thinking that cricket equals t20 then they'll have committed a, a, a monstrous crime in my view um, because of all the things you said, there is nothing. There is nothing like Test cricket. Yes, you get the occasional draw, but you know something? Actually, they can be exciting as well. People drone on about oh, cricket as a draw. God, I've seen some amazing draws in Test cricket. Um, so, just, just think of that Monty Panesar, Jimmy Anderson, Paul Collingwood yeah. draw in two thousand and nine in the Ashes at Cardiff, I think it was, or Monty Panesar helping. Matt Pryor saved that third Test in New Zealand in something like two thousand and thirteen. I mean, these are tremendously exciting moments. They are. And, and, and I've seen the ground in Antigua uh, on the last hour there, the sun fading uh, on the old ground in the wreck uh, in, in, in St. John's, filling up with locals because word got out that the last pair were together, the West Indies pair. Will they survive? Will they not? You know, and and it, that's, that's what cricket does. And T20 has got its place. But at the moment, it's, it's, just, it's just swamping everything. You know, if, if the balance is right, T20 cricket should be able to fund test cricket, keep it healthy, keep it vibrant. Um, and and for the, for the for the for the joy of everybody, people will get sick of T Twenty cricket, and probably in, only in just a few years' time they'll be fed up to the back teeth of it. There was so much of it. You put your telly on, it'll be oh hang on, I saw him playing. He was he was wearing a blue shirt last week. Look, he was wearing a green one today. Who's he playing for? 
you know, it's just really, is that what, is that really what the administrators think that people want? No, they don't. They want some of it, but it's going to be balanced. And at the moment, it's swung far too far the wrong way. An ultimate question, touring. When you are on tour and you've toured as a player, but you've also toured as a commentator, is that tough? I mean, obviously, it's tough for some people. Have you found it tough? How do you keep yourself entertained? Uh, it's tough being away for so long. Uh, I'm, I usually miss my kids' birthdays. We miss every other Christmas. The kids have grown up now, so it means Emma can come out. Um, and we have done some you know, lovely things on the tours. Um, when there's been a break between tests, you know, we, we have. We make the most of it and make it work for both of us because um, she's been incredibly patient. Uh, the best thing for me was when we won the Ashes in Melbourne and I was going out onto the field to interview the players. There's huge crowds, celebrations, and there was a spare pass in the commentary box. And I grabbed her, stuck it round her neck and took her out with me onto the middle. Uh, while I was broadcasting, and I, I was able to say to her, this is why I do this job, you know. Um, it is a selfish job. Um, and, yeah, touring touring is... Most people, I think, would do this job for five years. They do a circuit and a bit, and then, you know, they go back and do a do a normal job, be at home and be a good dad. Um, but there's really nothing else I could do, I don't think. Um, and it kind of got me hooked, and I, and, and I, love, I love being... I love broadcasting. I love commentating on the radio. I guess outside of cricket, what are your passions and do you have any secret skills, special skills? <laughs> special skills. Um, well, my, my hobby is flying. So I um, I do have a part share in a, a single engine aeroplane. Um, so I do like doing that. I take I pack the dogs up. I've got two, two spaniels, stick them in the back of the aeroplane. We fly to Skegness um, and run on the beach. And in fact, the, the old, the old fellow who died recently, he had 110 hours in his logbook. Uh, he went with me everywhere. Um, so that's what I'm doing. You can get in the aeroplane. Um, no one can bother you. You're fully focused on what you're doing. It's a complete change. Um, it's an expensive hobby these days, sadly. Um, but I try and get up once a month um, just to keep the you know, keep the skills up and so on. So that's, that's what I love doing. And, you know, we mentioned being on tour. That's what I love doing on tour. So if I've got a day off on tour, uh, the others go off and play golf. I'll find out an airfield, um, bag an instructor, and off he'll go and fly around New Zealand, you know, parts of New Zealand, Australia, South Africa, wherever we wherever we happen to be. So that's again, a, it's a it's a it's a it's a great thing to be able to do. I can imagine flying around keeps you honest, and you can't be that terrified of the first Ashes Test of a summer if you've been up in the sky. <laughs> well, you, you you do scare yourself every now and then, that's for sure. Before I let you go, Agus, quick fire: greatest batsman you ever bowled to? Cliff Richard. Greatest bowler who ever bowled to you? Hmm. Andy Roberts. Finest victory, best victory, most ha- most happy-making victory you ever experienced for club or country? Um, beating Essex in the, in the semi-final of the Nat West in 1992 when I came out of retirement to play. Um, and, uh, yeah, yeah bowled, bowled pretty well. But it, it shut Graham Gooch up, who was the England captain, who would give me stick for weeks before it. Most exciting cricket match of any sort you've ever been to as a commentator? Uh, heading to uh, 2019. That was Ben Stokes. Uh, unbelievable. I was on Correct. a Spanish beach as he did that. I couldn't believe it. And, <laughs> and the Spaniards, the, 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 the Spanish sunbathers or Spanish swimmers couldn't understand why I was getting so excited. No, the no. Great, greatest England victory that you've ever witnessed, in, 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 either as a commentator or just as a fan? Well, it'd be that, that, it has to be that test match because I don't, I don't think I would ever, I mean, I know I'll never see another test match like that again. Um, and it's a shame because having just won the World Cup and then that, English cricket, I think, really was on the springboard. It was going to take off. 
and then covid happened that next year and so you know scuppered it rather but that that test match in 2019 coupled with the world cup win were, were massive for english cricket final two greatest bowler of all time uh, shane Warne. greatest batsman of all time batter of all time I was happy with batsman actually. Um, I rigorously stick to batsman. Um, There's batsman of all time. Well, obviously Tom Bradman. I never saw him play, but you know, to average ninety-nine, he must have been a pretty decent player. Agus, it's been such a delight. I knew it would be really, really interesting and just a, a great thrill to interview you at, at length. So no, mate, it's a pleasure. So much. Uh, absolute so much. pleasure. I'll, I'll, I'll talk to you soon anytime. You know that.